you want to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, uh, the title of my message is called Dangerous Teachers. And I want to look at some of the dangerous teaching that is out there. But let me start with an illustration. About eight miles off the northern coast of California lies one of the most dangerous stretches of coastline in the U.S., concealed by violent seas and thick fog, the jagged edges of a submerged volcanic mountain chain await approaching ships like a dragon. In the late 1700s, British explorer George Vancouver named this area Dragon Rocks because of, of how many ships the dragon had taken down. The, the greatest claim the dragon made was in 1865 when the steamer SS Jonathan sank on one of these rocks with the loss of 225 souls, inspiring an extraordinary effort to make the water safe. The U.S. decided to build a lighthouse on a tiny spit of rock eight miles off the coast. It took 10 years to build this lighthouse. This is the late 1800s, and it cost the lives of many men. I don't know if we have the picture that I sent. I don't know if we, is that up there? Yeah, so this is, this is the lighthouse. It's not in operation today, but you can see kind of the round area. That is 50 feet tall. They built that round casing, which took them forever. The lighthouse is another 100 feet tall. And it was just the most deadly, dangerous place. At times, this whole rock is wave swept, or we covered at one point, the ocean level was halfway up the lighthouse, and a wave came and smashed the glass at the top of the lighthouse, which is 150 feet tall. It was called the St. George Reef Lighthouse because it was hoped that it would be able to slay the dragon. And for over a century, it was home to the most remote, most expensive, and most dangerous lighthouse ever built. This message and this series that you are in is an attempt to build a lighthouse, to protect you from the many false teachers that can lead you astray. False teaching is like those underwater rocks and jagged reefs, deceptively positioned to damage, destroy, and even kill. And 1 Timothy 6 is a warning to be aware. We need to be aware of these false teachers, to, to keep away from the rocks of false teaching. So look at 1 Timothy 6 and verse 3. Paul says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we had food and clothing with these, we, we will be content. 
But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now, Paul, who was writing this letter to Timothy, he gets right to the point in verse 3. He says that true and honest teachers teach the words of Jesus. And that teaching results in godliness. If you listen to the words of Jesus, it will produce godliness in your life. And one of the ways that you can tell true teaching from false teaching is by the fruit that it produces. Godliness is a fruit of sound biblical teaching. Paul then drops the gloves and says, listen, if you teach anything else, you're conceited, you don't know what you're talking about, you are controversial, and you're quarrelsome. That's what the false teachers are like, and we see that in verse 4. And the fruit of their teaching, we see this in verse 5, is not godliness, it's envy, conflict, it produces division, slander, evil suspicion, do you become suspicious of others? Constant friction, evil thoughts, and ignorance of the truth. If we do not heed the warnings about false teachers, it will lead to ruin, destruction, grief, and we may even wander from the faith. That's a scary word, wander. It's not a blatant rejection or a running hard away from God. No, it's, it's just a slow drift. It's just the tide and, and the waves gently moving you away from God. And you end up on the rocks. You, you end up in a place that you never thought you would be. Paul then focuses on a prominent false teaching in his day at the end of verse 5. They were teaching that godliness is a means of gain, that God wants you to be rich. You shouldn't be content if you're not rich. Now, there's great gain in godliness, but it's, it's not necessarily financial. Look at verse 6. It says, now there is great gain in godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. It's interesting, when we're born... We're content with nothing. And when we die, we're content with nothing. You know, it's interesting that we don't really care about money or possessions when, when, when we're dying. It's between our birth and our death that we lose our contentment. That's when we focus on the things that we want, the things that we don't have. But a godly person is content even if he doesn't have material things. He's content with food and clothing. That's verse 8. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Now, this is an amazing verse. I would be much more comfortable if Paul included a house in there and maybe a car, maybe some friends, some family, uh, my phone. I don't think I can be content without my phone. My list is a lot longer than food and clothing. But I think the point is clear. Godliness moves you away from material things. 
It moves you away from greed. And there's an important warning in verses 9 and 10. Look at it with me. Verse 9 says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. There's a, there's a contrast in this passage between a desire to be godly and a desire to be rich. One brings great gain, the other brings temptations and snares and ruin. A desire to be rich, the the love of money brings other problems with it. It's kind of like inviting the cat in the hat into your house. It may seem like a good idea to allow the cat in the hat into your house, but he doesn't just come alone. He brings thing one and thing two. And thing one and thing two make a horrible mess. A a desire to be rich opens the door to a whole world of temptations. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And we must be on guard against it. Here's the whole point of my message. We must be on guard against false teaching because it can ruin our lives. And I want to take the remainder of our time to talk about three prominent false gospels that we must be on guard against. First, the prosperity gospel. Now, the prosperity gospel, sometimes referred to as the health and wealth gospel, is the belief that financial blessing and physical health are always the will of God. God wants you to be healthy, and he wants you to be wealthy. Riches and healing are yours if you have enough faith, if you claim it, and if you give generously. In prosperity theology, Jesus' death on the cross does not just forgive us of our sins. It also breaks the curse of sickness and poverty and gives us access to treasure in heaven. In Matthew 6, 19, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves Treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now the obvious interpretation of this text is that we're not to focus on material blessings and riches here on earth. We're to live for Christ, to to serve Christ others, to to sacrifice for others, and will be rewarded in heaven. Prosperity preachers turn the scripture upside down to say the opposite of what it means. They say we should tap into our treasures in heaven, our heavenly bank account, and by faith bring those treasures down here to earth. This is not the message of Christ, and this is not the good news of the Bible. This is a false gospel that has bankrupted Many people. It's led multitudes astray. One of the most disastrous developments is the way the prosperity gospel has spread in other parts of the world, like Africa and South America. People are so desperate to escape poverty that this message has great appeal. Several years ago, I had a chance to go to to Africa, to the country of Zambia, and I saw all these billboards were promoting health and wealth and happiness if you come to Jesus. And I was talking to Wilbrod, the pastor there, and he said, oh, it, this message is so popular in my country. One of the major problems with the prosperity gospel is that they have no theology of suffering. 
They have no room for suffering. When I was in Zambia, uh, we actually did a, a crusade. It was an actual crusade. And there were all these bands that came and performed. One of them was called DMK. They were, they were like the boys to men of Zambia. And they had this song. It was very popular. It was actually on the radio. It was called Favor. And they actually had this motion that they do where you'd have to go, Favor. And I, I really had trouble getting it down. You had to kind of do this triple thing. And, but they had everybody. They, they, it, was a, it was a popular band and it was a, a big song. And, um, and one of the, when they did that song, they, they did a little testimony. You know how artists will give a little message or kind of almost like a little testimony. And, and one of the guys, the lead singer in the band, said that you won't, God wants to give you favor. He doesn't want you to suffer. And Will Broad, the pastor who was sitting in the front row, dead center, when this guy said this is a big concert, everybody's there, he just said, you will suffer. Can you imagine that in the middle of your little message? He just said, you will suffer. And that was, that was the right thing to do. He was protecting his flock from false teaching. He was a lighthouse exposing the rocks of a false gospel. The prosperity gospel does not have a place for suffering or trial. But listen, God does. God does. Listen to these verses, Philippians 1. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. James 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kind. John 16, in the world you will have tribulation. 1 Peter 4, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Right? You will suffer. We will suffer. And it's not because we lack faith. Prosperity theology explains suffering by tying it to our level of faith. If you have enough faith, then you will be healed. Now, it's important to recognize that we do need faith, and there is a connection at times between our faith and healing. In Mark chapter 5, when the woman with the issue of blood touched Jesus and she was healed, Jesus said, go, your faith has made you well. Faith is important when it comes to healing, and we should pray for healing in faith. We don't want to overcompensate and throw out the importance of faith because the prosperity preachers overemphasize it. We should pray in faith, but we should also recognize that God is sovereign in our lives. He's sovereign over the trials and the sickness and the suffering we face. God works all things together for good, and he is greatly glorified. Listen, church, he is greatly glorified when we trust him in the midst of pain and sorrow and suffering. Do you remember the story of of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they refused to worship that, that image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Do you remember this? Nebuchadnezzar was furious, and he gave them one more chance before he threw them into the fire. You remember this story, right? And I love what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say. This is in Daniel chapter 3. Listen to this. Listen to the great theology in what they said. They said, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace... 
The God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. That's faith. He will deliver us. But then look at what they say. But even if he does not, that's sovereignty. Even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Church, listen, our God is able to heal us. He is a healing God. But even if he does not heal us, we will still worship him. Church, say that. Say, God, heal me. Heal us, O Lord. We believe. Help our unbelief. Give us faith. Heal us. But even if he does not, we will still worship him. Amen? So what do we do about the false gospel of prosperity? Well, for one, we need to stay away from prosperity teaching. Don't listen to messages or read books that promote false theology. Some of the best known Prosperity teachers today are people like Joel Osteen, Creflo Dollar, T.G. Jakes, and Paula White. Um, Don't follow them. Now, I want to clarify, I'm not mentioning these names so that we can self-righteously judge them and just look down on their ministries as much as I'd like to do that and I'd like to come off the top ropes and give them an elbow. That's not what we're called to do. And, and, and we don't have an exclusive claim on the truth. I'm sure there are things where we're off. So let's be humble, right? But let's defend and fight for the truth of the gospel. Now, I'm guessing that most of you would say, I don't, I don't listen to those teachers, and that's good. But there are still ways that we can be influenced by health and wealth theology. Do you ever find yourself more preoccupied with, with God's gifts than God himself? Are you jealous of what others have? Is there discontentment when it comes to your material possessions or, or your health? When you face extended trials or sickness, do you ever feel like it's because you lack faith? Are your prayers mostly about things you want God to fix or or things that you need? Or are they more about thankfulness and, and praise and worship? Let's be aware of the dangerous drift toward the rocks of the prosperity gospel. Number two, the love yourself, you first gospel. The Love Yourself, You First Gospel. Here are some actual quotes from Christian authors and speakers. These come from best-selling books and messages that are heard by millions. You come first, and your happiness depends on you. You are meant to be the hero of your own story. I'm desperately trying to exercise self-control right now. and not, Okay, I've lost self-control. You are not supposed to be the hero of your story. Okay, self-control is being restored. Here's another quote. You should be the very first of your priorities. Your first priority is to keep yourself happy. You can't love others until you love yourself. You have to love yourself first. Now, what do we make of, of this? Is this what the Bible teaches? In Matthew 22, Jesus says we should love God and love our neighbors as ourselves. And many are teaching that this means that you can only love God and your neighbor 
to the degree that you accept and love yourself. Our self, our lack of self-love is often seen as the root of all kinds of issues, ranging from, ranging from depression to anxiety to obesity, addiction. Basically, all of our problems can be laid at the foot of not loving ourselves enough. Now, this is a little tricky because there is a sense where we should accept ourselves. And it's also true that there are times that we need to make sure we're taking care of ourselves. Sometimes we can overly prioritize the needs of others and neglect our own, and that's not good. But is our main problem that we're not loving ourselves enough? Is self-love our goal? 2 Timothy 3 says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be, number one, lovers of self. Number two, lovers of money, and then it goes on. The Bible doesn't call us to love ourselves. That's not only an unbiblical idea, it's hard to do. Because when we look at ourselves, we, we often don't like what we see. Let's be honest, we all live aware of our failures and insecurities. We all have things that we're ashamed of. We, we feel guilt and regret and pain for things that we've said or done in the past. We all live aware of our faults and sins. And I get what society and specifically psychology is trying to do to help us. They're trying to get rid of those feelings of guilt and inferiority. And they promise that if we look inside, we will find a way to love what we see. And that will bring us peace. But the problem is when we look inside, we don't only find beauty and goodness. No, we find sin and, and selfishness and darkness. If any of you knew the thoughts that have come into my mind over the last year, you would view me as a horrible monster. And the same is probably true if I knew the things that, that came into your mind. Our hope doesn't come from who we are. My son Asher was doing a Bible study uh, a couple months ago before everything shut down at his uh, college or sinus college, and it's, it's with his Christian group, InterVarsity, they were discussing 1 Peter 1, which talks about the fact that God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he asked the question to the group, he just said, what is your living hope? Expecting to hear answers about our inheritance in heaven, which is what the passage talks about, or maybe things about Jesus being our hope. Instead, one of the students said, my living hope is living for myself, which is kind of like, I don't know if you ever remember in Aladdin when his jaw kind of like the whole jaw like hit the ground kind of thing. Now, listen, I'm sure this college student is a sincere and kind person. Maybe she misunderstood. But if she's following Christ, her living hope is not living for herself. You can't look to yourself to find the hope and the strength and the goodness that you need. There's, there's, not, much, there's not that much to love when you look at yourself. 
But I have really good news for you. You don't need to look inside of yourself to find joy. You'll never find joy that way. God's word calls us to look outside of ourselves, to look away from ourselves. It calls us to look at Christ, to see him hanging on the cross. Look at him bleeding and suffering and dying. He's not dying because we're beautiful and good and full of potential. He's dying because we're full of sin and evil and darkness. He's dying because we made a mess of our lives and the lives of others. We screwed everything up. We've ignored and rejected and forsaken God. But God the Father, in his, I don't even know how to describe it, in his ridiculous, scandalous, unimaginable love for us, he took all of our sins. He took all of our corruption. He took all of our guilt. He took all of our shame. And he nailed it to the cross. And this is the most ridiculous thing of all. He then adopted us as his sons and daughters. He adopted us into his own family. If you are a follower of Christ, your sins are forgiven and you have been credited with the righteous life of Christ, which means when God sees you, he sees the goodness and righteousness and perfection of Jesus. Listen to what I'm going to say right now. What you think about yourself matters some. What God thinks about you matters more. And it matters more than what you or what anyone else thinks about you. Do you see why this is such good news? You don't have to go on a psychological expedition into your soul looking for something to love about yourself. You are perfectly and eternally loved by God for all eternity. For all eternity, despite our sins. And if you're in Christ, you will never escape the love and joy that he has for you. God doesn't want us to accept ourselves just the way we are. He wants us to become, with his help, more and more like him. It's, it's true that we are incredibly valuable to God. We, we've been created in the image of God. We have incredible worth to God. But it's, it's not because we're worthy or lovable. We're unworthy in and of ourselves. You will not find worthiness if you look inside yourself. You will find worthiness when you look at Christ. Jesus is the focus of heaven, not us. Jesus is the center. When we're there, we read from Revelation, he's the hero. He's the one that we will worship, not us. Responding to this dangerous doctrine, which is promoted in the book called Girl, Wash Your Face, Elisa Childers says this. She says, in all these scenarios, the answer is always something like picking yourself up by your bootstraps and striving and trying and running a marathon and getting therapy and reciting mantras and reading a good blog post and seeing a guru and drinking wine and not drinking wine and relaxing and taking a vacation and keeping the promises you make to yourself. Anything but surrendering your life to Jesus and placing your trust in him alone. Your happiness, your success, your everything, it's all up to you, ladies. I don't know about you, but I don't think that's good news. Jesus offers us true joy and peace, but only after we realize that we're not the center of our own lives and that we're no longer in charge. If anyone would come after me, he says, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. See, the Bible doesn't call us to love ourselves. 
And it doesn't call us to put ourselves first. It calls us to put ourselves last. Jesus said this in Matthew 20, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The message of loving yourself and putting yourself first is the air that we breathe. You don't have to listen to a megachurch false teacher to hear this message. This message is hitting us every waking minute, and it comes from a million different sources. Our phones, TV, the music we listen to, friends, social media, news media, sports celebrities, advertising, politicians, teachers, coworkers, bosses, everywhere. These reefs and rocks are all around us. Now how do we discern if this teaching is influencing us? Here's a little diagnostic test. Do you ever find yourself saying, I just need some me time? Or I need to prioritize myself. Or what I did isn't that big of a deal. I just need to forgive myself. I just need to accept myself. Or that's just who I am. Or God wants me to be happy, doesn't he? Someone I know recently, someone in our church recently left his wife. And one of the problems was he began to have fellowship with the church, but he began to have fellowship at his work in these other areas that were not a good influence. And they all told him, oh, you should divorce her. She's not making you happy. Get rid of her. Go. Leave. Run. That's the message of the world. But listen, that is a different gospel. It is a false gospel, and it preaches a message of self-love and self-fulfillment. Let's be aware of that false teaching. Last one, number three, the tolerance gospel. The tolerance gospel. The last false gospel that we have to guard against is the tolerance gospel. Now, tolerance is something that is talked about everywhere. But should we as Christians be tolerant? Was Jesus tolerant? Well, in some senses he was, right? And in in other senses he wasn't. And it's the same for us. Kevin DeYoung says we cannot be tolerant of all things because God is not tolerant of all things. We can respect differing opinions and try to understand them, but we cannot give our unqualified, unconditional affirmation to every belief and behavior because God doesn't. We must love what God loves, but we must also hate what God hates. In Revelation 2, Jesus commends the church at Theatira for the way they love others. But he also rebukes them because they are tolerating unrepentant sin. They're tolerating false teaching. In Revelation 2, it says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works succeed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. It was good that they were loving others. It was not good that they were tolerating Jezebel. It was not loving. They were tolerating a Jezebel-type woman who was leading others into sin. She was a false teacher, and she was not to be tolerated. Now, let's distinguish between the old tolerance and the new tolerance. The new tolerance is really intolerance, but the old tolerance, let's talk about that first. It's, the old tolerance meant that we could disagree with one another. We could argue. We could persuade. We could warn others. We couldn't coerce, right? We would never look to the government to try to force someone to, to adopt our beliefs. To quote uh, this quote from, it's sometimes attributed to Voltaire. It sums it up nicely. He said, I disapprove of what you say but I will defend to the death your right to say it. That's the old tolerance. It allowed two people to both claim they were right. The new tolerance is not this at all. 
The new tolerance does not start with objective truth. It does not assert that some beliefs are right and others are wrong. It asserts that all beliefs are right. Under the new tolerance, you're not allowed to tell anyone they're wrong unless they believe that some people are right and everyone else is wrong. You follow? The new tolerance destroys the old tolerance, and it makes it impossible to have any kind of debate or challenge someone's opinions. If you proclaim that someone is wrong, you're seen as intolerant and dangerous. You know, people tell us all the time, well, hey, you can't judge. They use Matthew 7, 1, do not judge or you will be judged. It has to be the most quoted verse by non-Christians. But it doesn't mean that we aren't to make any judgment or judgments. It, it, it means we aren't to sinfully judge. In the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said, do not judge, he made all kinds of judgments. He condemned anger and lust and divorce and swearing and revenge. And in John 7, Jesus says we should judge with right judgments. If someone tells you not to judge, they've just made a judgment. They are judging those who, by their standard, are judgmental. This makes it really hard to reach out to people with the gospel. It, it makes all religions and spiritual beliefs equal. We call this pluralism, the belief that all religions are equally right. What do you do with this? Well, the idea that all religions are right collapses under its own weight. If someone says, well, I think all religions are equally right, you could say, well, do you mean that all religions are equally right except for the ones that claim to be exclusively right? It's impossible to believe Christianity and other world religions are equally valid because Jesus taught in John 14, 6 that he was the way and the truth and the life and that no one comes to the Father except by him. This completely contradicts other religions, as well as the gospel of tolerance. Now, there's a lot more we could say about pluralism. If you're interested, there's an entire talk we do in the Bridge Course on this called Is Jesus Really the Only Way? Bridgecourse.org. One of the fears of those who subscribe to the new tolerance is that our claim to truth and exclusivity could easily turn totalitarian. It could be oppressive. We could be dictatorial. But true Christianity does not lead to tyranny or oppression. At the heart of Christianity is a savior who was right about everything. He was truth itself. But he laid down his life in order to save others. He, he humbled himself. The cross shows us that God does not and cannot tolerate sin. The, the cross is a gruesome demonstration of God's wrath and judgment on sin, but it also shows God's towering love, his towering mercy, his towering grace, his towering humility. It's not a tolerant love. It's a redemptive love. Jesus is inclusive in who he invites to be saved, everyone. Anyone can come but he is exclusive in how they come, only through faith in him. So what do we do about this message of, of tolerance? Well, we need to be tolerant of other people's beliefs. That's the old tolerance. We need to love people. We need to listen well. We need to respect what they think. But we cannot be tolerant of the new tolerance. We must be able to say that there are beliefs and opinions that are not true. There are things that people believe that are wrong and false and harmful, and we have to warn people about those beliefs. We can't keep the truth of the gospel to ourselves. And this will increasingly cost us. 
We will be accused of hate, injustice, judgmentalism, and a lack of love, or we'll just be written off. Well, what do we do? In Matthew 5, Jesus said, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Like the early church who faced much greater persecution, even death, let's ask God to fill us with his spirit and give us boldness to proclaim the gospel to those who desperately need it. And let's rejoice when they reject us. As this message in this series comes to a close, my prayer is that you would be better equipped to avoid the dangerous waters of false teaching. The goal is not to correct others or to be self-righteous or critical or proud. The goal is to be a church that lives by the word of God, a church that guards ourselves from error. And we want to be a church that has at its center and focus the gospel of Jesus Christ.